morning. Good morning. Good morning. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. Can you help me? Oh, yeah. So remember, the okay. book of Hebrews was written to the Jews who had are converted to Christianity, but we're thinking about going back to Judaism, right? Hebrews. And so the author of Hebrews is making a very strong case all throughout the book as to why Jesus Christ is superior to everything in the Jewish religion. Not to mention Jesus was the one that the Jews were really worshiping, right? When they worshiped God, who were they worshiping? Jesus. So we get to see that today. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. So we're going to get to see that today, that these Jews were really worshiping Jesus. That Jesus was in the Old Testament. And we're going to read about that. And it's pretty cool. So you got to stay all the way to the very end to catch that part of it. So. Wait, what verse? Hebrews seven. chapter 7. We're going to start at verse, we're going to start at verse 1. Okay. So before we get started, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn about who you are, about your son Jesus, about your spirit, how you work in our lives, how you love us. You never leave us or abandon us. You're always with us. You're patient. You're long-suffering. That you are the almighty God. I just ask that you would meet each one of us right where we're at and you would speak to our hearts. That your words would be spoken here this morning in this study, not mine. Says that you would um, just bring your spirit upon our our study and upon this room, and you would lead us and guide us in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So we've been over this Melchizedek fellow a few times in Hebrews. He's brought it up, but here we're going to take a, another look at Melchizedek. So. We got a lot of verses to cover, so we better get started, huh? When do we not have a lot of verses to cover? We go over a lot, huh? Okay, so let's get started. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 7, starting here in verse 1. And today we're going to be out of the New Living Translation. So, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, and... That's a big and right there. Also a priest of God Most High. So in the Jewish culture, you had kings, right? King David, King Saul, and then you had priests. But priests were never kings, and kings were never priests. They never served both roles. But here we read that this Melchizedek fellow served both roles. As king of the city of Salem, and also priest of God the Most High. So he's king and priest. And so, a little spoiler alert, there's only one person in the Bible that is king and priest. Do you know who that is? Melchizedek. Jesus. Jesus. Yes, and Melchizedek. You're right. So, what do you think, who do you think Melchizedek is? Jesus. Oh, he's like a foretelling of Jesus. That's very interesting. So, Continuing on here in verse 1. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great 
battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. Now one thing that the the New King James Version says is that Abraham gave him a tenth of all. So it could be implied of all that he had. So either way, one way or another, Abraham gave a tenth of either what he took in battle or all that he owned to this Melchizedek fellow, who we think might be Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you know what that's called when Jesus appears in the Old Testament? The Bible term for that is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. So do you think that Jesus was born on December 25th? And then he, you know, that's when he started. That was when he was born. You think he was born in the Bible? You think he was, I think he always existed. He was, he may have come into this earth on that day, but he always has existed. He exists, God exists outside of time. There's no beginning and there's no end to God. So, continuing on. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. So this Melchizedek fellow, names are a big thing to God, especially in the Old Testament. Um, names were very significant. They had meanings to them. So this guy's name is King of Peace and King of Justice. Who do you think that represents? Jesus, King of Peace, King of Justice. So let's take a look at this Melchizedek story. So let's go to Genesis chapter 14. Right? So we hear that Abraham gave a tenth. Let's look at what that, what took place there. How did this all come about? How did it come about that this Melchizedek fellow met Abraham? And what was Abraham doing? So Genesis chapter 14. Starting, we'll do the whole thing, the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. So, now to give you a little background, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, right? The nation of Israel started with Abraham. And Abraham leaves his land and with his family. His nephew Lot is with him. But Lot's family and Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen have disagreements on the land, so Abraham doesn't want a disagreement. So he tells Lot, you pick what land you want, and we'll go to the opposite land, and we'll kind of split up. And Lot picks this green, lush land known as Sodom and Gomorrah, and that leaves Abraham with the not-so-good-looking land. But God blesses that, and Abraham thrives where he is. So anyways, these two are split up, and then we'll kind of pick it up here at this... It uh. Here in Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. So about this time, war broke out in the region. King Amphrel of Babylonia, King Archus of Elsiar, King Kedelamar of Elam, and King Tidal of Geum fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adam, and King Shember of Zebal, Zebum, and the king, 
and the king of Bala, also called Zor. So you have all these kings that are fighting, right? But these group of kings come against another group of kings, and the important part is they come against the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And this is where Lot lived. So this second group of kings joined forces in the Siddim Valley. That is the valley of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subjects to King Keldemar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. One year later, Keldemar and his allies arrived and defeated the Rephetalis at Ashmorth, Kirim, the Zutites at Ham, and the Edomites at Sheev, Kirimoth. Kiramitham, and the Hortites at Mount Seir, as far as El Peron, at the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpah, now called Kadesh, and they conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in Hazaron Tamar. Then the kings, then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, Zimbo, and Boa, called Zor, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Keldemor of Elam, King Tidal of Giram, King Apathom of Babylonia, and King Arioch of Elziar. Four kings against five. As it happened in the valley of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits, while the rest escaped into the mountains. Their victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abraham's nephew who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. So now they've taken all the spoils of war, and they've captured Lot and everything he owned, and that's Abraham's nephew, right? Now, Abraham could have just said, well, you took the bad place to live, you picked a bad part of town, and now you just have to deal with it. But that's not what happens. You know why? Because Abraham loved Lot. And Abraham was a righteous man. So, we'll pick it up in verse 13. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Merar, the Amorite. Merar and his relatives, Ishko and Aner, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. That does not sound like a big army, does it? 318 trained men going up against all these other kings. Then he pursued Keldemar's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Keldemor's army fled, but Abram chased them as far away as Hebor, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot 
with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So, while these kings get together and they defeat this other group of kings and capture everyone, Abram goes up there. And now, that's a good point too, his name is Abram here because God has not changed his name to Abraham yet, right? So he goes and he captures them all and gets them all back, including his nephew Lot. Then we run into this Melchizedek fellow. So, Melchizedek, we'll pick that up here in verse 17. So after Abram returned from his victory over Keldamar and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shavi, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. So this is really interesting. This Melchizedek guy is a Christophany, I believe, of appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And what does he do? First, he brings Abram some bread and wine. So God brings him a gift, right? So do you know what grace is? Do you know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is being forgiven for something we've done, right? It's been removed from our record. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Well, we may deserve a punishment for something we've done. We don't get that, right? That punishment's been removed. But grace is getting a gift when we don't deserve it, right? So while maybe we deserve send, we deserve a punishment, but instead we get a punishment, we get a gift, right? Something to that effect, that's grace. Grace is something undeserved. We've done nothing to earn it. And that's what you see here. Melchizedek brings Abram some bread and wine, brings him a gift, and then blesses him. Blessed is Abram by, who's, he, who's blessing him? God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. And in our other studies, we've learned who created heaven and earth. Jesus. Everything was created through him, right? And nothing was, nothing exists that wasn't created by him. We read that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verses, the first few verses go over that. So, he makes it clear who's blessing him. And then, on this blessing, he goes on to say, Blessed be God the Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. So, he went against these mighty kings and all their armies with 318 men. And how is he able to do that? Because God defeated the enemies for Abram. So, we'll continue on. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take as much as a single thread or sandal thong from whatever belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten and request that you give a fair share of all the goods to my allies, Enar, Eshkol, and Mirror. So, 
he gives a tenth of what he has, what he's recovered to God. And the king of of Sodom says, you can keep all the goods, just let me have my people back. And Abram says, no, I don't want anything from you because then you'll say you're the one that caused Abram to be wealthy. And who was the one that caused him to be wealthy or provided for him? And it was God. So Abram didn't wasn't greedy, didn't want anything to, to come that wasn't from God. And he trusted that God would provide for him, right? So that's the, the story of Melchizedek. That's the story of Melchizedek and Abram meeting, right? Okay. So now we'll go back to Hebrews. In Hebrews in chapter 7, the author here is going to explain us a little bit more, give us some more insight on who Melchizedek was. Like he already has. We've read that he's the, the king of Salem, but he's also a priest, right? So we know that he's king and priest. So, so we will continue on with Hebrews chapter 7 here in verse 3. So verse 3, there is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. No father, no mother. Does Jesus have a father or mother? He may have had a mother here on earth, but Jesus always existed. No beginning, no end, right? So more and more, the author is making the case that this is the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, right? See how that works? The author of Hebrews, the person that wrote the, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who it is. Like a lot of the, when we read through Romans, we knew that Paul wrote the book of Romans. So Paul was the author. Really, God is the author of all of it. But, but we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So... So continuing on here, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek who is not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give the blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. So the author of Hebrews is making a distinct connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, And he's pointing out to these Jews who think that their religion is so mighty and so much more important than everything else in the world. Like when they would pray, thank you, God, that you didn't make me a Gentile like all these other people, right? That's how they would pray. They viewed themselves as so much higher than everybody else in the world. So here this author is saying, hey, this Melchizedek fellow who clearly resembles Jesus even Abraham was lower than him, right? So he's making this case that Jesus was far superior to even Abraham, founder of their Jewish religion, right? So, verse 8, The priests who collect tithes are men who die. 
So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collected the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. So he's saying that the, that the seed, that the family line, Levi would come out of that family line, and that family line was what started with Abraham, and that that family line uh, showed reverence to Melchizedek, who was really Jesus in the Old Testament, right? So it's making this argument that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the patriarch, the founder, the starting of the Jewish religion. So, uh, continue on here in verse 12. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priests were all taught... Sorry, let me do verse 13 again. For the priests were... We are talking about belong to a different tribe. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members may never have never served at the altar as priests. So that was a tough one to get out. So the priest they're talking about, Melchizedek, belongs to a different tribe. He doesn't fall in these tribes of Levi. He existed before Abraham, so he's in a different family line altogether, right? Not just one of the 12 tribes of Israel is what the what they're saying here. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned a priest coming from that tribe. So when the tribes were split up, we had the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi, that was the tribe where all the priests came from. But Jesus who is going to be our king. He's going to rule and reign here on this earth during the millennial kingdom. He's also our high priest. We've been over that in Hebrews leading up to this, that he is the high priest, that Jesus is king and priest. But as priest, Jesus didn't come from the Levitical tribe, from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. So much like this Melchizedek came from a different line and he was priest, Jesus came from a different line than the, than the line of Levi, and he is also priest. So he's making that connection here. Uh, continuing on here, actually, before we continue on with that, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So we understand that the, when the tribes are split up, they all have different roles and different jobs, and they all got different allotments of land. But the tribe of Levi got no allotment of land because they were to rely on the tithes from the people to support them. They were the priests, right? 
and that that was their job. They were priests. They were the ones that tore down, set up the tabernacle, served in the tabernacle, would later serve in the temple. That was their job, right? They were the priests. But here we read in Genesis, early on in the beginning of the Bible, that the that our Savior would come through the line of Judah. And we read that here. There's a few places it talks about it, but one place is right here in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So the scepter, so ruling will come through the line of Judah, right? And that is through Jesus. Jesus would come through the line of Judah. And all the nations will honor him. We haven't seen that yet, but we will see that in his millennial kingdom, where he will rule and reign over all the nations for a thousand years. Is that pretty cool? Let's take a look at Psalm chapter 2. Some Bibles say Psalms and some say Psalm. Mine says Psalm. I'm going to go with the one that says Psalm. Singular. Singular Psalm. Chapter 2. Chapter 33, there, I see it. 30, Psalm 30. Find Psalm 2. Should be somewhere in the beginning here. Yeah. Yep, there you go. Yep, so Psalm 2. Let's take a look at verses 6. Let's start in verse 6. So starting in verse 6 of Psalm 2, the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem. On my holy mountain, the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. So, again, we read that Jesus is going to be king, right? And that he is high priest. We've already learned that in Hebrews. So much like Melchizedek, who is king and priest, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is also king and priest. Make the connection? Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, now we can go back to Hebrews. That's how this works, girl. All throughout the Bible. Hebrews chapter 7, and then we'll finish off the chapter. We'll start in verse 15 here. So, verse 15 through the end of the chapter is going to continue to make it very clear that Jesus and Melchizedek 
or one and the same, right? But I think we've already established that. Do you see all the connections between Jesus and Melchizedek? And do you see the connection that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham? Because Abraham gave a tithe to him, honored him in that way. And that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So whoever gives the blessing must be greater than the one receiving the blessing. So we've established that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So greater than the founder, the father, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. Okay, so we'll continue on. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So both in the Psalms, we read that Jesus is king, right? And we also read in the Psalms that Jesus is priest, king and priest, again, right? So that can be found, what we just read, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That can be found in Psalms 110, verse 4. We won't go there, but now you know so continuing on here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath but there was an oath regarding but there was an oath regarding Jesus for God said to him the lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow you are a priest forever and again that's psalms 110 verse 4 right and we've been over this we've been over this the promises of God, God's promises are like guarantees. They never go away. They always happen. He always follows through with them. So if he says something's going to happen or he says someone is something or whatever it is he says, it happens, right? So continuing on here, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of priest, the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once 
for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. So do you see how that works? The priests that were serving in the temple, they would offer a sacrifice every day, first for their own sins and then for the people's sins. And every day they would have to do it over and over again, right? Because before Jesus' death on the cross, what happened? They had uh, animal sacrifice that covered up sins, right? But Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice, removed our sins. So before Jesus died on the cross, was there a removal of sins from your record? And the answer would have been no, right? That these animal sacrifices and, and the sacrifice that the priest did, sacrificing daily at the temple for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people, only covered up sins, right? It was a covering. Kind of like Adam and Eve. Remember when they sinned? And what did God, what did God do? He killed animals and made clothing for them to cover up their sins, to cover up their nakedness. Interesting, isn't it? But now Jesus, when he died on the cross, and that's what the person here that's writing the book of Hebrews is saying. He's making a very big contradiction to what Jesus has done. When Jesus died on the cross, now our sins are removed from our record, right? When we ask God to forgive us, he never brings it up again. You'll never see it on any book for all of eternity. He removes it from our record. So, verse 28, the law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. So we all understand our human weakness. We all fall short of God's glory, of God's standards. But Jesus is the perfect high priest. He understands everything we've gone through because he's gone through it himself, but he did it without sin. Does that make sense? So he is the ultimate high priest. He's the only one that could have sacrificed himself for us. He's the perfect sacrifice. That God loved us so much that he sacrificed his one and only son. All of this makes sense. Now, in my just my regular readings, I came across something kind of cool. So let's go to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. So the nation of Israel at this point, we've had Abraham as the, the founder of the nation of Israel, and then we've had his son Isaac, and is the next one in line, and there's been others. The nation of Israel ends up um, through Joseph going to, to Egypt. God leads him there, and the nation follows. His brothers and his, his dad follow behind him. Those are where the 12 tribes come from, Joseph and his brothers, right? Or the, what make up the, the 12 tribes. So they all end up in Egypt. They end up there very glorious, but over time, the Egyptians forget why they're there, and they end up becoming slaves and oppressed in Egypt. And then God frees them from Egypt with Moses. They have the, the seven plagues that come on Egypt, and the Egyptians finally, Pharaoh says, fine, leave. 
but then changes his mind and chases after him, and they cross the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closes on Pharaoh, right? So there's that. Then they wander in the wilderness, and they get ready to go to the promised land, but they get scared. There's two, two of the scouts that come back with a favorable report saying, oh, yes, there's giants on the land, but if God is with us, we can take them. And the other scouts are, are scared, and the whole nation got scared. So God didn't let them into the promised land, and they wandered even longer. Well, now, at this point, they are in the promised land. That Joshua, after Moses, leads them into the promised land. But after Joshua dies, we go through this series of judges. There's one judge after the other that leads the nation of Israel. And that's how God intended to lead the nation of Israel. These judges would be going between the people and God, helping determine or judge what was right or what was wrong, helping seeing cases, helping settle disputes, but not on their own. They're relying on God to lead and guide them. And the kings that they would later have was not God's design. God warned them that you don't want kings. And they'll draft your sons and, and they'll, they'll oppress you and, and they will not lead the way that he wanted them to, the way God wanted them to. So that was never his design. This was God's design, was his judges. But during this time, the nation of Israel does what they often do, what I think probably we often do, is they have a relationship with God and then they kind of fall off and they start pursuing other things. They go after other gods or other things that are important in their lives. And then another nation comes and takes them over and they are slaves for for years, sometimes 7, 12, 14, 20 years. And then they finally cry out to God and what does God do? He rescues them. And he continues to do this. They go through this cycle. And so in chapter 6 here, we come across this man named Gideon. And Gideon is one of these judges, one of these rulers over Israel that God is going to choose to save his nation. And right now, the nation of Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites. The Midianites have taken over and that the nation of Israel doesn't even have enough food to eat. So we will pick it up here in Judges. Um, Let's just, well, let's just start at verse 1. How about that? Yeah, we'll start at verse 1. So Judges chapter 6, starting here in verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountain, in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying the crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes These enemy hordes coming with their livestock tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So this is one of their cycles. If we were to go back to... To chapter 5, we would read about how they 
were walking with God and, and that were certain a judge was leading the nation of Israel and things were going good. But then we pick it up here in chapter 6 and we read that they do evil in the Lord's sight and that God hands them over to the nation uh, of the Midianites and that they severely oppress them. But just like in the cycle, after time, they cry out to God. And what does God do? He rescues them. But it does get to a point later on where God says, we've gone through this cycle enough, and now I'm not going to rescue you. And he didn't for a long period of time, even after they cried out to him. So I think the lesson to be learned from that is that we can cry out to God and he rescues us, but if we continue in this cycle, at some point God, even after we've cried out to him, doesn't rescue us. Because the point is that we shouldn't walk with God and walk away, walk with him and walk away. We should just walk with him in all that we do. So here in chapter 6, verse 7, When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of the slavery of Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath a great tree at Orpheth. So when we read about the angel of the Lord, oftentimes, who are we reading about? Who do you think that is? Just like we read about Melchizedek. Just like we read about Melchizedek, right? And who was that? An appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when we read about this angel of the Lord, it's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay? So, in verse 11... Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Orpeth, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Elbazar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says, Mighty hero of the Lord is with you. But Gideon doesn't see it the same way. Verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So here God has called him to go free the nation of Israel to fight the Midianites. 
And what does he say? My tribe is the weakest of them all. I'm the weakest of my family, right? There's nothing special about me. I can't do this. And he's probably right. He can't. But with God, all things are possible, right? And God often uses those who are the weaker, who are not the most popular, who are not the most likely. King David is one of those. King David had many brothers ahead of him. And when the priest came to anoint, he knew that this was the household. So he came to anoint the next king. And he started with the oldest and worked his way down. And God kept saying, no, no, no. And it got to the bottom. And they run out of, run out of sons in the house. And, and Samuel says, well, there has to be someone else. And the father goes, well, the only one that's left is David. But there's no way he'll be the next king. And sure enough, that's who God chose. And what did God do? God raised up David to be a mighty man, right? So God often uses people who are unlikely to do great things. And why does he do that? So that he gets all the glory. So God gets all the glory for it. Make sense? So this is another situation. Gideon is unlikely to do great things. But when he does, all the glory will go to God. So, verse 17, Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove it is really the Lord speaking. Don't go away until I come back and bring, bring my offering to you. He answered, this being the Lord, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home and cooked a young goat with a basket of flour he had baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. So here he's asked, if it's really you, if you're really God, you know, give me a sign. Do you think that was a bad thing for him to ask? No, he doesn't get rebuked. He's not wrong for asking that. God, if this is really from you, show me, right? And so, and what does God do? God patiently waits for him to come back, right? And then let's see what God does once he comes back. So, the angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. So he places the meat and the bread on a rock. He pours the broth over it, soaks it all down. Have you ever had like bread that got wet and it's all soggy? Do you think you can light it on fire very easily if it's soggy? No. Let's see what happens. So, and Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. So he puts the meat and the bread on a rock, pours broth all over it, soaks it all down. The angel touches his staff to it and fire consumes it and it's all burnt up. Does that sound similar to another story we've read on Mount Carmel where they set up the sacrifice and they douse it with water, make a moat around it with water and continue dousing it. And God set down fire from heaven and burns it all up. Remember that? You don't remember that story? We'll have to read that one again soon. Mount Carmel, that goes up with the, the priests of Baal, and they set up their sacrifice, and, and uh, Elijah sets up his sacrifice, and 
say, okay, we'll see who's got the real God here. Whoever comes down and burns up the sacrifice, that's the real God. So the, the priests of Baal are calling out and Elijah's making fun of them. Well, what's wrong? Where's your God? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. You know, remember that? And nothing happens. And then Elijah finally, at the time when they should be sacrificing, every day they'd sacrifice. So the time of the evening sacrifice, what does God do? After they've set up Elijah's sacrifice, and theirs is dry. There's not a wet sacrifice. Elijah's is soaked. They just took water and dumped it over and over and over it. Made a moat around it. Soaked it with water. And what's God do? He sends down fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice. Even burning up all the water and rocks around it. And they knew that there was a God in heaven, right? So that's kind of a similar thing on a little smaller scale, right? We're taking the sacrifice, soaked it down with broth, and God burned it up. Pretty amazing. Okay, so anyways, he asked for a sign. Do you think that's a pretty good sign that that is God that he's talking to? I would say yes. So when Gideon realized that the angel of the... When God... I'm sorry. So verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Because they believed that if they saw God face to face, that they would die, right? I think God has told them that. So, verse 23, It is all right, the Lord replied, do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shimon, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains at Oroph in the land of the clan of, El- of Abizur to this day. So then there's more that goes on. We won't read it all, but we will skip down to verse 36. Okay. So God has already called him out and said, you're going to lead, free the nation, you mighty man. And he's the, the weakest of his clan. The clan's the weakest of all the tribes, right? Very unlikely. He says, oh, I need a clear sign. God gives him a clear sign, right? So there's other things that happen. And God is getting ready to send him out. But Gideon is still not sure. So we'll pick it up in verse 33. So then Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel, as promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to rescue, that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl of water. So he says, okay, God, if you're really going to use me, I'm going to put this fleece on the ground. And if what I'm asking for you is if you really want me to do this, that the fleece will be wet, but the ground will be dry with the morning dew. And so when he wakes up, that's exactly what happened. The fleece was wet, but the ground was dry. He wrings out a whole bowl of water out of the fleece. Then, verse 39 Then Gideon said to God, Please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. 
The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. So, God has given him very three very clear signs, right? This is what he used to do. Does God get mad at him for asking for these signs? I don't read about that anywhere. But do you think that Gideon can move forward in what he's about to do, knowing that God is with him? Yes. And so, if we were to continue reading on, he gets nervous about attacking the army because... God, he starts off with 22,000 men and God says, no, that's too big of an army. If you go in with that many, you'll think that your army, your might did this. So he reduced the army size down again and again and again, all the way down to 300. So he allows Gideon to go fight these armies with 300 men. And he knows that Gideon is nervous because he says to him, if you're worried about this, I'm going to give you, you take you and your one other man and sneak into the camp and listen to what they're saying. And what they were saying is that God, in a dream, told the enemy army that they were about to be taken over. And when Gideon heard that, then he was confident again. And so, with 300 men, God defeated this Midianite army. So this, there's that movie 300 about the warriors. I would say to you that that's like a perversion of what God had done. Because God had already used 300 men to defeat this evil Midianite army. Pretty amazing, huh? So, is it wrong to ask God for signs and clear direction when you're not sure what to do? Doesn't appear to be. Here we see where Gideon asked for three clear signs. And we've gone over this before with Jonathan, his armor bearer, asking for the one clear sign. So, when they did this, then it was very clear what God was asking them to do. And they could have confidence moving forward. So can you do the same thing in your life? Can you ask God for clear signs? Set something up in a way that is out of your control? But then when it happens, trust that it's from God and move on, right? Because the best thing we can do is let God lead in every aspect of our life. Whatever it is. Boyfriends. Which boys to date? Hopefully not date at all. <laughs> what schools to go to? What interests to pursue? Right? All these things we can go and ask God for guidance on. And what's the best thing? Listen to what he says. Uh-huh. And do it. Right? Yeah. Any qu- is there any questions? Yes. Okay. When you were talking about that one guy in the beginning... Melchizedek? Yeah. Okay. How was he there before Jesus was born? I know Jesus was there for everything. Yes, I know. But before Jesus was born on the earth. Oh, yes. That story, the story with Melchizedek and Abraham, that took place in the Old Testament before Jesus was born on the earth. Okay. Yes. But yes, Jesus always existed, right, outside of time. And Melchizedek was really an appearance of Jesus to Abraham in the Old Testament. So when it's Melchizedek, really, that's Jesus that came and appeared to him. Because Jesus always existed. But that whole story, yes, took place before Jesus died on the cross, before he was born on the earth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is it kind of cool that Jesus was in the Old Testament? I think when I was a kid, I thought that, well, Jesus was born when he was born on earth, and that's when he started. That's not when he started. He's always existed, and he's made appearances here on the earth long before he was born on the earth. Make sense? 
Yes. Kind of cool, huh? Any other questions? No? Any questions? Pray. You want to pray? What do you want to pray for? You have any questions? No. What about you? Dear Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to just learn more about who you are, how you work in our lives, how you lead and guide, um, and just how you speak to us. That you are, you are everything. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. That while many things may seem impossible to us, nothing is impossible with you. That you would give us the wisdom and the discernment to know when you were leading, that you would just make it clear to us. Remind us of who you are, strengthen and encourage us all throughout this week. Help us to be a light and a witness to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.